I'm sitting down here in Australia and it's uh, Wednesday, it's Wednesday lunchtime for me. It's a beautiful day and uh, it's 30 degrees which is about 85 degrees Fahrenheit so I really ought to be out in the sun but it is a working day so, so not much chance of that. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, the records continuum um, but I need to tell you that I'm not going to present an academic paper. Um, the, record the records continuum has been um, uh, worked as a theory by Frank Upwood and um, Frank uh, is the articulator, is the theorist if you like, but there are many people in Australia who have written in this area and I'm building on their knowledge and expertise. So I need to acknowledge the work of Professor Sue McKemish and also Chris Hurley who if you come across their work in the literature uh, you will um, find that they've been talking and using these concepts quite continuously. Um, so. You may, now let me just see if I can get these slides to go, yes, and can I point at them, that's the next thing. Can, um, I'm just going to pause here and see if you can see my pointer. Can someone tell me if they can see a pointer? Yes, we could see the pointer. Happy faces mean that you can see it, Barbara. Great, great. Okay, that that um, that's terrific. Okay, so you may um, be familiar with this representation of the records continuum. This is the representation of the model in its circles and all its glory. Um, I hope you can see it. Uh, it comes up across on my screen a little bit small, but I'm sure you've seen it at some point or will see it at some point. Um, the records continuum is more than just the model. There is a theory sitting behind it and uh, however I'm just going to concentrate on the model at this point. Um, I'm also going to be using terms that I'm familiar with, that I'm happy with, that you may be a little uncomfortable with. Um, primary amongst them is record keeping which is um, a notion we use in Australia to refer to the whole of records, the management of the whole of records, whether they're old or new, whether they're electronic or paper, parchment or whatever. It's an embracive term that encompasses everything. And I'm also going to be using terms like archiving and um, archival documents. Some of that may make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. To some extent it's, it's devi uh, deviously deliberate to try and shake you out of some of the uh, preconceptions. So bear with me on that. And before I start I just wanted to make some initial comments about the continuum. First of all, this is not radically different from anything that comes out of archival science. It in fact is totally grounded in archival science. In Australia we um, are a colonial country, a British colonial country, so in fact we inherited a whole lot of the British record keeping traditions which primarily are registry based traditions. Now I don't think you're very, uh, that, that's the same tradition in America um, but uh, it's quite an important one in Australia and it does uh, have a very strong continuous link to British and therefore Canadian and New Zealand and Hong Kong and Malaysia, a lot of countries around the world use this tradition of record keeping. Um, when our archival forefathers um, set up our archives framework, our archives and records framework, um, we looked to what was around and what was around was of course the literature 
of Sir Hilary Jenkinson, who was highly influential in our own traditions, um, to the extent that a later influence, T.R. Schellenberg, when we got on to modern record keeping and bulk and appraisal and all those things, um, said about Schellenberg, uh, in my professional work I'm tired of having an old fossil cited to me as an authority in archival matters. I refer, of course, to Sir Hilary Jenkinson, former Deputy Keeper of Records at the British Public Record Office, who wrote a book that is not only unreadable, but that has given Australians a wrong start in their archival work. Well, we don't really think that anymore, but it was a funny comment at the time. So Schoenberg came here in a, to Australia on a Fulbright uh, Fellowship in 1954, and his textbook, Modern Archives, which I'm sure you'll come across, was in fact written as a result of his Australian lecture tour and is dedicated just completely out of the blue to Australian archivists. So we're strongly situated in the archival science tradition and take um, great note of the, the theory and the practice. The record records continuum is a transactional model. Now, by transactional model, I mean that it emphasises actions and then the links to, to records. So it's not record-centric, it's action-centric. And I'll explain that to you as, as we go, go through. What it represents is our framework for thinking about records. And the framework is very solidly um, placed not only in archival theory, but also in the social dimensions of record keeping. And the theory says you can't understand what's going on in records without understanding the context in which it's taking place. And it's slightly broader than the archival notions of provenance because it's taking a bigger look at what that context might be. Again, I'll try and explain that when I get on to um, uh, the cases I'm going to present. And lastly, it requires a point of view. It doesn't force a point of view, but to make sense of a reading of the records continuum in practice, you have to have a point of view. And I'm going to, again, show you what I mean by that as, as I move through this presentation. So I need to talk to you about the records continuum model. And I need, well, I should say I actually don't like talking about the records continuum model. I don't like explaining the records continuum model because it doesn't matter which way I do it, it looks linear. And I'm just going to keep saying this, I suspect, but it's not a linear model. It doesn't work linearly. Although having said that, I can do a life cycle model reading into the continuum. So I can embrace a life cycle reading of things into the continuum, but it's not my preferred way to work. Um, so what is, the, what is the model? Well, it's four circles and um, four axes which um, have been labelled, creating 16 potential points of interpretation. There are many ways of using the model, and I'm going to demonstrate some to you. So to explain and, um, you know, taking a deep breath, I'm going to start from the inside out because that's, that's the way I'm most comfortable in explaining it. But you don't have to start that way. And Terry Cook, for example, when he's talking about the continuum model, will always start from the outside in. So it really does depend on your own personal preference. There's absolutely no meaning to that. Um, okay, these are the dimensions. And uh, of the, um, this, so this is the basic framework of the, the model. There are four circles representing the dimensions and axes intersecting them. You'll notice that the lines are kind of dotted and that's to indicate 
that the boundaries are not fixed, they're fluid boundaries. So things may or may not cross boundaries. Don't get too head up about the boundary notion um, because boundaries are, are kind of contingent. They depend on where you stand. Okay, let's look at the first dimension. This dimension is a really, really important dimension because it's the locus of all action. Everything we do is represented in the first dimension, the create dimension. This is where all actions take place. Um, and what we're saying here is that actions in record keeping are depicted in documents. Um, but in this first dimension, it's a very messy, um, unformed, um, not very formalized um, place where things are in formation. They do exist, but they exist as a trace of action rather than as a formalized record of action. And you'll notice down the bottom that um, we have the notion of an archival document. That's uh, a concept by which we're trying to say everything that's created or recorded has the potential from this very first part of creation to be to be a record and to be an archive. It doesn't actually have to be a record or an archive, but it's got the potential. What we're trying to do is set up in this first dimension the potential for things to be managed um, outside this dimension. So this is, um, this is a messy dimension of information, text, non-text, stuff representing what we do. This is our desktop, if you like, our Microsoft Office messy desktop. So what happens uh, is that um, records cross a boundary, if you like, and they're moved into the capture dimension, which is where they, they cease to be uh, in formation and they are lodged uh, with some metadata which enables them to be referenced by others to act as evidence of business activity. So they're more formalized. They've been um, captured into some type of a framework which enables us to manage them. The third dimension beyond the record is where sets of records, sequences of records, um, actions that are sequences of actions are taken beyond uh, the locus of the creation and capture and moved to a dimension which makes it more accessible to other people within an organization. So it's beyond the, the uh, locus of action and spreading out um, to be able to be used by others um, available uh, outside the immediate uh, environments of action. And here it joins a whole lot of other records from other processes and other activities to represent some um, individual or organizational memory. Um, this is the dimension of the FOND, if we have any Canadians or uh, people who look to European theory. So the archive, singular, is a collection of all of the records of an organization, whether they exist or they don't exist. So it's potential, destroyed, um, and it's all of those records that we're talking about in this dimension. Uh, in the fourth dimension, we're talking about an even larger aggregation of records. So we're talking about uh, more than the records of one organization being pluralized. This is a pluralized dimension. Uh, the records are taken out of the individual context, organizational context, and moved to a, uh, a context which is beyond the organization, above the organization. So this is the dimension of archives plural. Uh, so collecting institutions or uh, government archives. Um, it's also the dimension for cross-organizational systems, such as uh, joined up um, health uh, or justice systems. Those types of systems operate beyond the boundaries of one organization and actually exist at multiple pluralized dimensions. 
um, this is the environment that actually sets the social context for record keeping. So it's in this dimension we have to analyse things like legislation and mandates and social um, social warrants, if you like. Um, if we're a democracy, we operate in one way. If we're a dictatorship, we operate in a different way. All of those things are um, out, out in this pluralised dimension. Um, Let's look at the axes. There are four axes. The first is the evidential axis. And the evidential axis is really about the quality of the record. Um, how, how well does it prove a trace of action? Can we use it to testify ab uh, about the events? Is it, is it evidence of the action? And evidence here doesn't mean legal evidence, but it means um, uh, evidence of action, demonstrating um, uh, a record of, of what happened. Um, how, does, how well is it inscribed in our memory? How well is it used by others? How well does the organisation incorporate it into what it does? And more importantly, how is it seen in the collective memory? Is it part of the collective memory? Has it actually filtered out beyond the organisation? The record keeping access is the stuff that we all know about. Um, that's the stuff of the archival document. So that's the record information. It's the record in a system which is uh, formally managed. It's the record that cascades into an archive, the whole of the records of an organisation, and the, the records that exist in archives beyond um, the, uh, uh, the individual instance. Um, these, we tend to refer to these as record keeping containers these days, trying to get a, a bit away from the physical because uh, in the electronic world, of course, the physical is not always uh, there. And what we're doing with these record keeping containers is um, ensuring that they're linked to a whole lot of other information uh, by relationships so that we can see not just the object but the object in context. And if you think about, if you think about that for a minute, this is just the record record-keeping axis is just one of, of the axes and points in the, the record-keeping um, continuum. So it's much broader. So we're trying to take a much broader view of records. And just pause there for a second and uh, get onto one of my hobby horses. If we're just managing the physical thing, the document, then we're not managing records. Records are documents in context. So it's the document and its associated metadata and relationships and links to action that we need to manage as records. Okay, off my hobby horse now. To the other um, dimensions, this is the identity um, axis and this should look vaguely familiar. This is the axis of provenance in traditional archival record keeping theory. And what we're trying to do there is, is um, isolate the structures of, of, um, of records. In, well, in which records appear. And across the other side, we've got the transactional axis, and that's actually what's happening. Now, these axes don't actually operate in isolation. They actually fold up and interact with each other. Um, I wish I could actually demonstrate, and I can't, but there, there used to be a game we played as kids, and I'm presuming it's universal, which was a paper fortune telling game, and you folded a piece of A4 paper up into a rhomboid shape, put your fingers in it, and, and kind of brought things into intersection and lifted a flap. I'm not sure whether I'm completely confusing you, but what I'm trying to say is that the records continuum model actually needs to 
be folded up against itself so that the axes and the dimensions actually intersect. And the intersection is particularly close between <laughs> thanks, Patty, between um, the uh, transactional axis and the evidence axis, uh, sorry, the transactional axis and the identity axis. Um, so how we structure uh, organisations is about how we want to get the work done. Um, so we can think of those two as particularly um, close relationship and that's actually sociological structuration theory if you're interested in that stuff. And similarly, the evidence and the record keeping axis um, come together in quite a, a neat way. So, but, but what, what's great about the records continuum model is that actually it allows you to think of these, these points of intersection uh, at all times. So we, this is a mere represent two dimension, one dimensional representation of something that's very dynamic. And uh, in many ways that's a frustration because the model is seen flat and actually what we want to do is to kind of suspend it in space and let it twirl. Um, Brian Brossman, a Canadian, uh, has in fact developed an alternative con conceptualization of the model as a DNA strand continuously twirling and I think that's a great analogy but it's using the same, well I think it's using the same types of um, uh, construction to get a bit of motion and dynamism into it. Um, did I want to say anything more? I think not. I think that's time for the first of the questions. Let's see if we can manage this, Pat. I'm going to click off. All right, if you uh, have a question now, you can raise your hand. No questions yet? Deborah, go ahead and ask your question. I'll click off the mic. Hello, Barbara. Uh, very nice to have you with us today. I'm in California and it's dark and evening here. I have a question. Um, I deal with a lot of individual paper documents. They are standalone, although they uh, do relate to an electronic record series. So these documents actually are individual objects, and I agree with you that in this records continuum that uh, you're not speaking about individual objects. So. Do we talk about documents that are individual objects differently than we talk about electronic records which really exist in a series? Uh, thanks uh, for that question. It's a doozy. Um, I, my, the, the way we think about records is not about documents in isolation. No document exists in isolation if, if it's a record. Um, sorry if that sounds tautological, but um, really it's, it, uh, the emphasis is on the process that created it. How did it get to be um, uh, as, as it's represented to you? So it's about understanding the formation, how it came to be, what it is, and putting it into a context which is uh, a social and, and organisational context. Um, if we're managing documents as um, individual things, 
Now, I'm just not sure enough about the context in which you're speaking, but, but often we're not managing them as records. Often we're managing them as artifacts or objects in their own right, which is perfectly valid, but not necessarily what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a record keeping way of managing things. The second aspect that is really um, uh, interesting there is electronic series. And I uh, think that there's pretty uh, contested ground as to whether electronic records actually exist in series because series is a paper-based concept. So when we're talking about aggregations of electronic records, we tend to, uh, well, I, I think we tend to be talking about record-keeping systems um, rather than series because series uh, implies a static view, whereas uh, there are many ways of representing um, electronic records with multiple views. Now, I probably haven't answered your um, question at all, but that's uh, probably as good as I can do at the moment. Um, I'm going to pass back to, well, either you or to Pat. No, that answered uh, several different dimensional questions that I had. So thank you, Barbara. That was it was really quite interesting because I have all three, and so you know I'm trying to get sort of a, a supra theory so that uh, that I can start thinking about them. And I guess I'm going to have to continue thinking of them as three different types of objects. Thanks. Thank you very much. That was interesting. Um, Barbara, Amy doesn't have her mic uh, set up, I don't believe, but what she has is two questions in the chat area, so I'm going to take a look at them, and then perhaps you could address these, and then we'll move on. This will count for our three. First, she asked if you could talk more about transactional analysis, and then a little further on, uh, she says, meaning are the acts related to the creator of the document record and the purpose related to the patron using them at a library or archive, for instance. So I guess that is one question she's trying to clarify it. Yeah, okay. I'm going to move on to look at some case studies and hopefully maybe answer some of the transactional questions when I get through that. So maybe, Amy, if you could see if I answer those questions as we move through it a bit. If not, please ask me again at the end. The, the record keeping, to answer your second question about the act of creation, the act of creation I would say for records uh, exists in many places and that's a very postmodern view if you like of um, record keeping. So yes, um, a patron in an archive is actually involved in an act of creating because it's actually placing a record in different circumstances. But really uh, the record keeping uh, focus is on the formation. So the processes that lead to the actual creation of the uh, the document, its weaving of relationships as it goes through whatever purpose it is serving in the process of being created in the creating body and then being pluralized out. Now each time you add a relationship, uh, you add context and you can tell different stories. And I wouldn't uh, rule out for one minute that people using libraries and archives create records in that in that kind of larger sense. But generally speaking, we're talking about the process of formation of the archive in record keeping. hope that helps a bit. I'll just check on the chat to see if it's all right. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I think we might just move on. Um, 
the records keep uh, the records continuum can be hard and dry, and particularly if you read Frank, who can be a bit obtuse. I actually have to tell you that he's a very good friend of mine, and I'm not slagging off at him. Um, but he can be a bit theoretical. So what I'm going to do is give you a non-theoretical um, approach to how to use the model, and I'm going to um, uh, try and do this um, using a story, and I'm going to use the story of the stolen wages. I'm going to use the model. And I'm going to show you different ways of using the model. So one of the things I want to do is to show you how you can use it as a thinking tool and not get hit up about filling in the boxes. You don't have to fill in the boxes. You can, but you don't have to have something that, in fact, you know, hits every one of those points. It's, uh, it's a way of thinking and using it in a dynamic way. And you can't be wrong. It's an interpretative tool. Hopefully, I can show you what I mean by that. Okay, I'm going to talk about the stolen wages case. Now, um, the stolen wages case is in fact a corollary story, a parallel story to the story of the stolen generations here in Australia. Um, you may know that we do not have a very happy record of dealing with our Indigenous populations in Australia. In fact, I'd say it was a pretty lousy model. Um, and uh, it's quite controversial in Australian society. To the extent that uh, we've got a new government, a uh, reasonably new government, um, and uh, the first act of the new Prime Minister was uh, to open Parliament with an apology to the stolen generations for the past practices of government which were about taking children away from their Indigenous families and placing them in... Um, uh, structures that were supposed to assimilate or protect them. Um, I'm going to use a, a, a story which uh, relates to a woman called Yvonne Butler and her family. Yvonne is a, was, I'm sorry, was an Indigenous Australian. She died on the 13th of August uh, this year. And I have uh, thought long and hard about whether I can use this story and consulted with uh, experts in the Aboriginal information and heritage field. Because her, pub, her story is in the public domain, I was um, assured that it was okay to uh, use the story, but I certainly won't be showing you any images of her as she has in fact died. And I do uh, need to say that it is her story and I'm trying to respect her family and traditions as I tell it. So a little bit of background on uh, the stolen wages. So um, as I say, we've had this reasonably torrid past and I might tell you torrid present, um, trying to uh, reconcile uh, the, way, the white ways and the ways of our Indigenous people. But in the past, the story hasn't been very uh, happy and uh, uh, we have had um, administrative traditions or um, regulations established by the states. So in Australia, we have a Commonwealth, which is uh, a Commonwealth government, but then seven state governments, but like your own state governments and national government. The responsibility for managing Aboriginal affairs lodged with the state and each state had um, legislation uh, suited to their own particular requirements. And acts have been in place since the you know, mid to late uh, 19th century. And depending on the prevailing political um, philosophy, uh, these were either protection acts or separation acts or absorption acts or assimilation acts. Whatever they were, they um, uh, exerted an enormous amount of control over the rights and uh, permissions of Indigenous people. So they, they, Indigenous people were um, 
required to live on reserves, they had to have permits to work, to marry, to move. Um, they, um, uh, the, the state controlled their working conditions and their employment rights. It was a very controlled situation. I might say now that there are still permits, but they kind of operate the other way around. So the Aboriginal communities actually issue the permits in a beautiful um, um, reversal of previous um, practices. Now this, the case I'm going to focus on, Yvonne Butler's case, actually takes place in Queensland. Queensland is the state where most work has been done on this issue of stolen wages, and, um, but a similar situation exists in all states and uh, a number of other states have acknowledged that they've got responsibilities in this area and there have been compensation schemes set up. So let me talk to you about uh, the Queensland, um, the Queensland environment. So um, the act that establishes this, uh, the Queensland environment uh, is the um, Aboriginal Preservation and Protection Act of 1939 and those, that legislation required controls on Aboriginal workers. You could only be employed if you were an Aboriginal worker under a permit. The permit had to be issued by a protector. The protector was usually a policeman or an officer of the, officer of the court. Permits were issued for up to 12 months and employers were required to enter into these agreements. Um, by 1901, a minimum wage had been set under this legislation for Aboriginal workers and um, at various times the minimum wage was an eighth to three quarters of the equivalent white wage, pretty outrageous stuff. By um, 1904, protectors uh, could instruct um, employers to pay wages directly into the protector's own custody and the protector was allowed to spend wages on behalf of the employee. So wages were to be deposited in the worker's name in a government bank account um, and an account of expenditure from each account was kept. Um, the responsibilities of the protectors were to take care of the um, Aboriginal people in their directors, in their district rather. Um, this regime of compulsory saving, if you like, was in place well into the mid-1960s. Um, in 1919, um, the uh, um, regulations, uh, I'm just about to point here, yeah, so this is the employment agreements which were required to be set up which determined the wages paid. In 1919, pocket money was paid direct to the individuals, that's just a random photograph, um, and uh, the rest of the money uh, that you were paid as an Aboriginal worker went into uh, this compulsory bank account. There were statutory declarations declared under the Act. You had to have a certain amount of your money taken out to be put into the Aboriginal Welfare Fund or the Aboriginal Provident Fund. And these funds were set up in order to manage um, in, in indigent um, members of the community and to support community enterprises. Uh, in about um, the mid-twenties, these um, savings accounts were consolidated into a single saving account, the idea being you can get more money, more interest on a bigger amount than a smaller amount and individual ledger cards were then kept uh, to record individual rights within the system. Um, so they were kept in this uh, consolidated account and the interest earned was supposed to go back but in fact, gosh, look, there's all of these little questions here about, yeah, but you know, how come the money doesn't, the money doesn't add up? 
And was all of the money from the Aboriginal welfare funds going into these, these community enterprises? And the answer is no. From 1920s onwards, there have been auditors' reports saying, hmm, the money just doesn't add up, the sums don't work. And so we know there's been quite a degree of fraudulent activity happening in this system. Um, governments use the money for things that might not actually have come under that category of community enterprises. And because of the amount of power given to um, individual protectors who are, the, uh, who are kind of sitting over here mediating between the employer and the uh, employee, there was quite a lot of room for fraud and a number of cases have been proved. So, this was all made a little bit more complex when the federal government, our Commonwealth government, became involved after the 1966 re referendum which gave full citizenship, and yes it was embarrassingly only 1966, um, to Aboriginal um, or Indigenous Australians. And at that point a whole lot of the benefits that the Commonwealth pays became due to uh, Aboriginal workers, so things like maternity allowance, child endowment, um, unemployment benefits, housing allowances, things like that. The Commonwealth paid that money into the state at, at, in a bulk sum and the state was supposed to distribute it to um, the people as it was due. Again, there are questions about whether that happened. So this has been kind of a bit of a festering sore for a long time because you can hear that people have been seriously done out of their money um, and there's no reason for it. So another kind of instance is if you died, rather than distributing the money in the system to your beneficiaries, it often just got um, sent straight back into these funds um, without actually ever being distributed out to the, uh, the beneficiaries. So it's all a bit scandalous. In 1996 there was a case brought before the Human Rights Commission here in Australia and the case was upheld against the government. So the government was found guilty of misappropriating funds and um, uh, keeping money uh, or, and underpaying people. There was a compensation scheme uh, suggested at that point by the Human Rights Commission. The Queensland government actually rejected that scheme as it was proposed at that time. That again created uh, an outcry um, and uh, a case was brought, a legal case was brought in front of the federal court, one of our judicial uh, courts, and uh, again they were found guilty. Uh, as a result of that, the Queensland government did establish a fund, a compensation fund of $25 million. Um, but the way it was administered was that you, you had to uh, make a claim and every individual could, could make a claim and um, you, you were only allowed to have up to um, $4,000 in one, in one hit and if you took your $4,000 you were to indemnify the government forever. They closed the fund, that, uh, that fund in, 19, uh, in, sorry, in 2005 saying all of the claims had been settled but in fact only 20% of the claims had been settled because guess what, the people who were coming to make the claims didn't have sufficient doc documentary evidence. So the record keeping associated with this is really quite um, fundamental to the ability to claim. And Yvonne Butler, um, the person who's at the heart of the cases I'm going to talk through now, uh, has been an activist in this area. 
What I'm going to do now is try and talk you through this using the records continuum model and a number of different scenarios. When I'm using the, the continuum model, I'm going to show you different ways you can use it. In each of the ways, I've used a consistent protocol. So anything to do with the first dimension, I've used red. Anything to do with the second dimension, I've used blue. Anything to do with the third dimension, green, and the fourth, purple. So let's go. Here we go. This is the story from the government's point of view. This record is a, is a uh, ledger card. So it belongs to, if I can flip back, oops, it belongs to this series here. So it's one of these. It's a ledger card of um, Yvonne's mother, Rita Jackson. And you can see it's got um, various bits of metadata. It's actually a microfilmed record which has been uh, printed out and imaged. So you could tell a story about the transformation of the format if you wanted to. But I'm not going to do this. Um, these slides have kind of come out a bit funny. That, just in case you're wondering what that splotch is, is just a little tiny image of that wages card. So ignore it wherever it appears. So what's happening here? Well, in the first dimension, we've got a whole lot of actions going on. We've got an employment contract. We've got an approval uh, to be employed and the development of that contract. We're going to have to register the contract. We're going to have to ensure that the wages are paid to the uh, Indigenous uh, employee. We're going to have to um, record that the wages are paid. We're going to get approvals and requests for deductions from that wage. We're going to um, make statements uh, to central office. So the system was um, managed both locally in the district and also a copy was maintained in the Brisbane office, so both local and centralised. And then we're going to have to reconcile the records that are uh, held at those two locations. Now all of these are transactions and they're all happening, you know, they're actions, they're transactions. Out in the second dimension, we can talk about records. What records are we talking about? Well, we're talking about an employee, an employment contract. We're talking about a ledger card for Rita Jackson, which is kept in the local office. In the central office in Brisbane, we're talking about a personal file, which is kept on Rita, and ledger cards, which are also kept in the central record, as well as statements of transactions. At the next level out, we're talking about um, an organisational level. We can talk about sets of records or series of records. So in terms of the series of records, we can talk about the um, wages register and saving bank account ledger cards which were kept in the district office, a parallel series but uh, trying to keep them reconciled is always an issue. In the uh, Brisbane central office, we have uh, personal files in the central office in Brisbane and registers of contracts kept in the um, uh, central office in Brisbane. Each of these are actually in the State Archives of Queensland and I, if I wanted to I could have given you the series numbers. So out in the um, larger layer, if you like, the, the fourth dimension or the third dimension, depending on what what uh, reading you're doing, we've got a larger aggregation of records. So the larger ag aggregation is uh, the records of the Office of the Protector of Aboriginals in Atherton, which is the district, uh, and then from uh, a later date, the records of the Aboriginal and Island Affairs Department district office. Okay, so that's, um, that's kind of a one trot through. 
we can look at the transactional axis, and here are the transact oh, I'm sorry, here are the transactions that are happening in the first dimension, the create dimension. These are the actions that are taking place. What are we doing? Well, we're managing individual wages. We're overseeing Aboriginal employment and money, and in the fourth dimension, the reason we're doing all of this is to protect Aboriginals. You know, protect in inverted commas, you know. So this is the transaction axis. So going back to that question earlier, that's kind of how that works out. We can look at uh, the identity axis. So who are the players? Well, there's uh, uh, the employer, there's uh, Rita Jackson herself, and there's the mediator, the local protector. They're happening in the first dimension. They're involved in the creation of those records locally. We're, we've got the Brisbane Central Office, which is a, a unit. We've got the district office in Atherton and, and its successor um, agency. The local protector is also operating as a unit, um, a, an independent unit in his own right. So it's person as unit, if you like, person as, as role. And further out, we've got um, the, uh, the bigger departments that are overseeing the uh, administration. So the Department of Native Affairs and the Aboriginal Island Affairs Department. Um, we can look at the mandates. So up here, we've got the uh, Act, which um, uh, established the system. And we've got regulations under the Act, procedures, and local instructions. Now, how is the record keeping? Um, actually viewed in this system. And these are just uh, some comments, again, organised dimensionally, if you like, uh, from a 1991 investigation report into this system. I'm not going to read them all out, but you can probably see that um, quite often it starts off, record systems are poor. Uh, most of the staff who had any understanding of these matters have left the department or retired and nobody knows what's going on. Administrative systems are complex and only partly understood. So. Basically, we can analyse the, um, the, the record-keeping um, view of uh, what's going on according to dimensions as well. Now, that's um, what I've done to you for you today is, is literally a kind of fill in the blanks, try and, try and put something against each of those labels. And as I said to you, that's not the only way you can use the, the continuum model. Another way is to actually think about how these, how these records are being formed. So when we're talking about what's happening in the first dimension, we're talking about sequences of actions, sequences of um, actions which are being recorded, continuously recorded into, into records and record keeping. Um, so you can represent this in a, in a dimensional way. Uh, and you'll find that it goes in and out and in and out and in and out. Similarly, when we get to um, the next dimension, you can find that, again, the records and the, the, the dealing with the records actually is not a linear process. It's um, an iterative process where records are continuously um, uh, being added to and formed, and it's not, it's not just a once-off thing. And the same, if you wanted to analyse, oh, the green looks a bit faint there, but the, the same principle is in play when we're talking about records um, being aggregated into series. It's not just a once-off thing, it's a continuous process, and they go in and out and in and out. Uh, so that's the, that's the first case study, and I know I'm kind of pushing time, but um, uh, how are you going, guys? Does anybody have any questions now? Uh, if not, uh, we could move along and then take some at the end.
All right, I'm not seeing any hands raised, so um, we could go on uh, to save time and then we'll have another opportunity in a little bit. Okay, back to, oops, there's a hand raised. Do we want to deal with that now or? Just a comment that, um, you know, you guys don't feel free to comment too. You can, you can make comments or if you um, <clears throat> are, if you're understanding it, I would certainly like to hear that as well. So, um, and I'm sure Barbara would also. So um, feel free to comment as well. Great, thanks, Laurie. Absolutely, I'd, I'd like to hear. Um, so I'm going to go on, uh, and please interrupt me if uh, if you if you need to. Okay, so I'm going to tell you another story using the same basic uh, facts, and this is getting a little bit closer to Yvonne Butler herself, who, as I said to you earlier, was an activist in this area. So she was avidly pursuing the Queensland government for the wages of her mother uh, and and other members of her family, and in order to do that, she had to. Um, assembled proof of um, what was going on. So she used, and this slide's a bit messy and I'm sorry about it, um, they, it was layered and I can't do transitions in the presentation, but so she's using these um, pieces of legislation or authorising um, mandates, she's using freedom of information, privacy policy and the access policy of the department in order to, so there she is, she's the actor here, and she's going to um, um, uh, seek uh, copies, get um, permission to access the records which are held in departmental hands. So Yvonne herself is um, an actor and she's going to seek permission uh, to get copies of uh, records held by the department in order to establish the facts, to seek compensation and build family archives and construct and verify identity, which is one of the critical things with the stolen generation. Uh, so we're trying to re-establish identity and uh, family and social networks. And all of this is being done in pursuit of equity and justice. So she's going to be interacting with the community and um, personal information team of the Department of Communities. She's going to be talking with the Reconciliation and uh, Reconnections Unit of the Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islander Partnerships Office. Yvonne is acting on behalf of her family. Um, so she is both an actor and a unit, but she's in acting on behalf of a large entity, which is her family, her immediate family, and at an even broader level, the mob she belongs to, which is, is the social grouping, um, how we reference the social grouping. So she's going to be um, uh, look, looking for, in the record story, she's going to be looking for copies of records. So she's going to lodge a permission form and copies of the records which are, um, are going to be incorporated into the record system of um, the Department of Communities, but more importantly the copies of the records will, will in fact um, supplement the oral recollections and stories from her family and her mob to accumulate into the records of the individual family members and also to form the family archives. I'm going to move straight on to the third story that I'm going to tell you, um, which is uh, based on a, a committee of inquiry. Uh, the Commonwealth, uh, I said to you, was involved in the payment of allowances of various kinds 
to the various governments which were then responsible for distributing them. Um, they got involved uh, in this whole case once uh, it was realised that in fact maybe the money wasn't going where it was supposed to go and established in 2006, they established a standing committee on legal and constitutional affairs reporting on the, um, the Indigenous uh, stolen wages issue in a report called Unfinished Business, Indigenous Stolen Wages. So Yvonne Butler uh, here made a submission to this inquiry. So she's uh, making a submission to the inquiry about the records and here's um, a copy of a fax which again you don't have to read but just um, it was uh, further to the, the formal submission uh, and encloses the, the saving bank ledger cards. You probably can't read that but maybe you can make out that that's what it says. That's the actual instance of record we've been looking at uh, and it in fact formed part of the evidence submitted to the Senate uh, inquiry. So what's going on with the, oh and here's the report, sorry, here's a copy of the report. And what's going on here in terms of the records continuum? So let's talk about the whole formation of the, um, the committee. Out here in the fourth dimension we have a representative of the community who is an elected representative, a bloke called Andrew Bartlett who by chance is also an Aboriginal person. He is out here as a representative of uh, Queenslanders in the fourth dimension sitting in the Senate and he is lobbying the Senate, any action takes place in this dimension, he's lobbying the Senate to establish a committee. So that's an interaction between the fourth dimension and the first dimension. The committee is established. The committee you could say is located in the third dimension because it is in fact a, a subordinate unit to the Senate which is a fourth dimension entity and it has to establish itself and establish its terms of reference so it's working internally here. Once it does that it makes a call for public submissions, so a call from the first dimension it's doing stuff out to the fourth, out to the public, I'm making a call for submissions. Yvonne Butler then, out here in the fourth dimension, responds, all actions taking place in here. Yvonne's submission is taken into account and she's asked to appear before the committee. So here we have a whole set of processes about committee reports, committee hearings and once the hearings are done we have um, a whole lot of processes internal um, about the writing of the report which is going to be first and second dimension, that's this little arrow and the report will be um, submitted to the Senate so submitted out here, the Senate in this case becomes a controlling body so it's going to go to here, um, sorry the, the, the report is actually okayed by the committee which is out here, it's in its own domain and then out to the Senate which is its fourth dimensional parent. And then the Senate publishes the report which pushes the report right out again into the fourth dimension. Um, again what I'm trying to show to you is that it's not happening in one dimension, there are multiple interactions happening all over the place, the records are, res are a response to action which is coming from the external, coming from the internal, coming from all over the place and the records are swirling around this model. I hope that kind of makes something clear. Um, are we up to questions or shall I just plough on through? I think you should uh, just continue uh, and then we'll have time for questions in a few minutes.
I think you could get started, Barbara, again. Sorry, I've been busy talking to myself there. <laughs> um, just technology cluts. Um, my fourth story is fictional. I'm um, just making this one up. But I wanted to take a further dimensional look. Um, so in my fourth story, I've um, fictionally created an organisation called Stolen Rages Queensland, a community activist group. And there were, there were many, there are many operating in Queensland, but this one is fictional. So in this, in this environment, what I've got is a, um, a community group which has got no money. Uh, it's run by um, the nephew of Auntie Rita. And uh, he's a cool, tuned-in tech guy. And he has found uh, the records of um, Rita Jackson, as submitted by Yvonne, out here in the fourth dimension, out here in the web, out here in the reports. And because he wants to use them in order to pursue his own political agendas, he's brought them down into his organisation. So he's copied them down from um, YouTube, uh, sorry, down from the web, and he's tagged them. So he's creating them and he's launching them back into um, Flickr and YouTube and um, SlideShare. He's using the records to um, start a political campaign. So he's, he's pushing them out to the fourth dimension, but also using them to create a, a political an email campaign to lobby um, uh, parliamentarians to get on with doing something about this. Now, because this organisation has zero money, they're using nifty stuff like Google Apps outsourced applications. So the records are actually of um, of the SWQ, but they actually live out here in a in a pluralised or a dimensional space that's not necessarily tightly controlled. Let's put on top of that an innovative collecting institution like um, uh, uh, University Archives, which is looking out on the web and thinking, okay, so how can we make, make uh, some logic and deal with our, our requirement to document what's going on in our society? So this collecting archives um, identifies that they want to collect the records of uh, SWQ and particularly noting the ones that are already out in the public domain. So it finds them out there in the public domain and it goes down to the, the SWQ and negotiates an arrangement whereby they can, in fact, take um, custody or uh, intellectual control of those records over time so that they can go out into this pluralised space and be available in a more robust way. And it's going to do this using technology that is uh, really nifty, like web crawlers, so that it's going to harvest using criteria that it sets out here in the fourth dimension to harvest these, um, these records that are out here. In reality, if I was telling you the story of the collecting archives, all of their actions, of course, would take place down here in the centre and it would be pointed out, but I'm telling the story from the fourth dimension. That is total fiction, okay? And really, this is not the time or place to talk about the technology and the storage stuff. There's a different model that deals with that. I'm not going to talk about this either, but there is this model called the information continuum model, which sits above the records continuum and gives you the technology and the um, storage uh, components, the action structure stuff uh, at a bigger level. All I'm going to do here is to say that the records continuum sits within an information management framework. It is, is not isolated. Okay. That's the records continuum. Now I'm going to do a little bit of a summing up of a few um, dot points and then I'm done, folks. So what on earth have I been talking about? 
the subtext to my talk has been about records. I've been trying to show you that records are continually being formed. It's not a once, time, once process. The, the business of linking them, continually linking them and continually reworking them into relationships is a creation process. So records are continuously in formation, even if they're not virtual, even in the physical world. And so consequently, we can think of records as a construct. So it, the paper manifestation, um, I think, conned us into thinking that there was a physical object, but actually records are always a construct. And if you want to think a little bit more about that, Sue McKemish has written a great article called uh, uh, um, um, Are Records, records oh, no, I can't remember what it's called, but anyway, Laurie will no doubt um, be able to point you off to that. Um, so what we're really about is um, managing multiple points of reference. We're about managing context. And actually, it's the relationship stuff that's the critical factor in records. Um, when we look at records, we privilege a particular point of view. The way we manage them, the way we document them, the way we talk about them gives us the point of view. Now, most of us work for organizations, and so that's the point of view we, we privilege. However, you can make other readings. And if, in the case I've given you, the reading of Yvonne Butler of the government processes is going to be a very different reading than the, the reading of the actual Department of Communities and Families or whatever it's called now. In fact, these two views can be quite contradictory and they can in fact be in conflict. So we're looking for ways that we can in fact enable more than one story to be told with exactly the same records. Uh, and this is moving into the notion of parallel provenance. Um, but whatever you do, you have to have a point of view. You have to be able to um, state your point of view and then lodge it into uh, a particular context. But don't forget, you can enable multiple readings. Um, and you've got to be able to put it into the social context or the political context, if you like, little p political, in order to be able to tell the stories. So I've been trying to show you that record keeping processes actually occur recursively, continuously throughout a record's existence. You can put different spins on how you use the model. You can make an accountability reading, you could write a regulatory reading, you could do a historical reading or you could do a current reading depending on what, what records you're analysing at a particular time. You can read the model as a forensic tool to explain what happened, as I have done with um, uh, Yvonne's case. You can use it as a diagnostic tool. What's going on and what should I do? What intervention points? What, what processes are appropriate at this uh, place? Or you can use it as a speculative tool, as I kind of tried to do at the end there. Um, and. Um, I've also tried to show you that it's actually not in isolation. It's always uh, linked to a larger framework, an information management framework. And finally, that it in fact um, provides a way of rethinking, reformulating and representing our professional knowledge. So that's me, folks, and over to you for questions if we have any time. Do we have any questions now for Barbara? Amy is thanking you. Anyone like to say anything? I'll turn over the mic for a minute or two. Uh, okay, that looks like Regina.
Hi, this is Deborah. That was very, very interesting, Barbara. Is there a reference to where we can read about the information continuum model? Uh, thanks, Deborah. Um, look, the information continuum uh, was a teaching tool we devised when I was teaching at Monash uh, with uh, Don Schauder and Frank, uh, Frank Upwood. And Frank's written a little bit about it in an article in the Records Management Journal, the British Journal. Um, uh, I think it occurs as, a, as an appendix, but it's uh, woefully underrepresented in the literature. So um, it does exist, but it's pretty pathetic in terms of its write-up. There's talk of doing something more with it, but. That was actually my question, too, because I wanted to read up on it. Anyone else? Maybe I can ask it. Maybe I can ask a question. I mean, one of the things I, I'm trying to do is to make you not scared of this model. It's a way of kind of playing, play with the model, throw ideas around and scribble on it, and and use it in a creative way. Don't get constrained to fill in the boxes because I actually really don't like the fill in the boxes one. So, does it make you feel a little bit comfortable with it? Oh yes, I think that this gives, uh, uh, I thought it was rigid, so I was having a hard time kind of forcing my uh, my examples through it. So the whole idea of the flexibility and folding it up, all of that made a lot of sense to me. So I'm going to take one of my next papers and uh, kind of give it the run through with this uh, this model. So I'm kind of excited about going and actually trying to use it in a real current situation. That's that's fantastic. Then I've done I've done my job. That's that's great news. Um, I just want to say that I think it's been they've been reading in Mar in the Mara, you know, the archives, record keeping in society is the text. And so um, they've been introduced to it, but I'm so thankful that you were able to really put it into um, you know, put it into a way that you've explained it much better than I ever could. And so <clears throat> it's, it's great for me to, uh, to listen to what you've said and, and know that these guys are really, you know, listening to it and hopefully can understand it better. Um, <clears throat> I've got a better way of looking at it and how I can talk about it in class um, and explain it more, uh, I guess, in terms that, uh, that are better for other people to understand because I feel like you know, I have it and I'm trying to explain it and try to uh, to get people through it. It's a lot for um, it's a lot for people to absorb. But yes, I agree with Debbie that the case studies are what really make the difference, Barbara. So that um, and and the fact yes, because you and what Patty says that. Um, the other way of visually presenting it with the, with the lines to show that there's constant going in and out of, of various dimensions and how it's active, it's always, always changing, that if we could just automate that, you know, and we need to put it in second light, for example, it would be great to be able to, to automate what you're saying and what you're presenting um, in 
in Second Life so that we can, we can walk into it and see it and, and be part of it so we can really follow how that, how that activity works. And it starts in the center and goes all the way out and then comes from the out and goes into the center and, you know, so much of it can really makes, um, makes such a difference to understand how it really works and, and where the life cycle sits inside it as well. Anyway, that's just my comment. Well, I know we've gone uh, over our allotted time, and I'm sure our presenter has much more to do uh, in her day. It's uh, early afternoon there. So uh, what I'd like to do now is thank all of you for joining us and thank Barbara for presenting. Thanks, folks. It's actually been um, a, a privilege and uh, an enjoyable experience. So I've enjoyed it a great deal. And of course, um, I'm only on the end of an email, so not that I guarantee to respond, but I am. I'm around. Thank you very much.